Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Electricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. There are very few people that I can say that I've met in my adult lifetime that I have found inspiring. Well, one of them is in front of me, and it's a great pleasure to have as our personal profile interview guest today, Father Peter McFerry. He has been a champion of the poor and the homeless in Ireland, and as we know, they never needed a champion more, having set up the Peter McFerry Trust, which is at the front line of dealing with homelessness and drug addiction. Father Peter, you're extremely welcome to Yates on Sunday. Let's deal with the very contemporary issue. It seems we've had a couple of years of emergency situations, hostels, hotels and so on. Where are we at right this week where people are going to guard stations? The fact is that for the last four years, every single month when the figures come out, the number of homeless people and families has gone up. Last year, for example, every single day of the year, seven new people became homeless. In 2012, seven or eight families a month were becoming homeless. Last year, it averaged 85 families every month. So we've gone, we've gone through a crisis for the last five, four or five years. And today, in my view, the problem is out of control. The minister has produced very detailed, comprehensive uh, proposals to solve the problem, but he produced those eight, nine months ago, and the problem continues to get worse. So to my mind, they're just not working. So I think the problem now is out of control. We've got to go back to the drawing board. We've got to look at far more radical proposals to try and end this uh, homeless crisis. For example, there are almost 200,000 empty houses and apartments boarded up uh, in this country. That's more than enough to solve not just the homeless problem, but the whole social housing problem. And I think we have to really make a huge effort over the next 12 to 18 months to get as many of those as possible back into operation. Now, the government's way of doing that is to give the owners an incentive, maybe 30,000, 40,000 euros to bring them back into use. And I welcome that. But if that doesn't work and owners are not prepared or are unable to bring them back into use, I think we have to go down the compulsory purchase route. And we have to just ensure that in 18 months' time, the vast majority of those 200,000 are accommodating homeless people and people on the social housing waiting list. It's that sort of radical action, I think, that we need to solve what I believe is a problem that is now out of control. Okay, but we both know, even if we take your trust, you have built apartments, you've converted accommodation, the capacity of hostel and spaces and so on over the last four years has increased. Where are all these people coming from? That's the big issue is where they are coming from. And my one of my criticisms of the minister's plan is that it has very little in it to reduce the flow of people or families into homelessness. The vast majority of, fam- of people and families becoming homeless today are coming from the private rented sector. They're either coming because the rents have gone through the roof and they can no longer afford them, or the banks have repossessed the home 
that they're living in and want them out so that they can maximise the value of that house when they sell it, or the landlord wants to sell the house and, again, can maximise the value if he gets uh, the people Can out. anything be done on the preventative side? Because I like, one so. of the issues we yeah. heard previously when Alan Kelly was minister was that the rent supplement ceiling was too low that it just didn't cover people. In terms of, like, I would have thought, putting someone in... A hotel is more expensive on the state than keeping them in private rented accommodation. What's your assessment about preventing it in terms of the rent supplement? Well, the rent supplement is still too low, even though it has, it's, it's gone up enormously since uh, this government came into uh, office. But it's still too low. The uh, minister has introduced a cap in certain areas of 4% per year over the next three years. But my question to the minister is, whose salary is going to go up by 12% over the next three years? So that cap is not going to prevent a lot of people continuing to be evicted because they cannot pay the uh, the rent. I think we need a rent cap which uh, enables the landlord only to raise the rents in line with inflation. That gives the landlord a reasonable return, but it also gives security to the tenants. The second thing we need, we need legislation to prevent people, and particularly families, being evicted into homelessness. The reason they're being evicted into homelessness is the bank or the landlord wants to increase the price of the house when they sell it. It is a totally disproportionate Do you blame the courts for that? The, the courts have been very good on the part of, 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 of the, uh, the debtors, in fact, and have made it more difficult for the banks to, uh, to repossess homes. But at the end of the day, under current legislation, the banks have all the power and at the end of the day, they can get those people to repossess the house and get them out. We need legislation to prevent people being evicted into homelessness, particularly families being evicted into homelessness. It's absolutely absurd. This is like the famine times. <laughs> that okay, people no. were evicted onto the street because they couldn't pay the rent. One of the things you mentioned there was vacant houses. I actually was reading a report on vacant houses and I don't know whether this is out of date, 2016 figures, it said there was 183,000 vacant houses. But the thing that I found really fascinating about that was that the majority of these and the rate 15% as against 3% was in the west of Ireland, in Leitrim, in Roscommon, in Mayo and so on. Are you saying, and I know you're quite Dublin-centric in your approach, Mm. that we should consider moving people out of Dublin? No, I think some people might like to move out of Dublin. There was always a rural resettlement scheme in operation where families in Dublin who wanted to move down the country were enabled to do so. As far as I know, that scheme still continues. If families do want to move out, yes, of course they should be, but they should not be compelled to move out. But you take my point, if that's where the vacant houses are, in Balladrine... Go yeah, there well, or not? We've almost 200,000 vacant houses. We only need 90,000. <laughs> so not all of them are suitable. And if they're down in County Leitrim, yes, they would not be suitable for most homeless uh, families. Not all of them are suitable. Others are tied up. There's legal problems with them. They belong to somebody who's in a nursing home under a fair deal scheme and can't be sold. So there are problems. Not all of them are suitable. But every single one should be looked at and every single one that is suitable should be brought back into use. It's absurd that somebody can sit on an empty property while uh, families are in need of housing. So you're saying they should be be acquired 
required the way required. you'd require a site for a road in the public interest? We, we, we do use compulsory purchase orders to, uh, to build roads. To, we can acquire even houses that people are living in <laughs> to, to build a motorway. So why can we not acquire empty buildings in order for a far greater uh, need, which is to house families? Now, the government's response is going to take years going through the courts to get compulsory purchase orders, and I can understand that, but I think the courts would stand over a compulsory purchase order and once the first case uh, has been defeated in the in the ultimately in the supreme court i think very few owners will uh, will, will want to go through that process knowing that they're probably going to be defeated and they will allow the state to uh, to compulsorily purchase peter a very imminent and specific promise made by simon coveney was by june of this year that there would be no one in hotels just on the front line, do you think that promise will be honoured by buying the hotels or putting in place modular housing or doing something else? What's your assessment of that promise? It's not going to happen by the 1st of July, that's for sure. Some of the modular homes or the rapid build houses, that is, as they're called, uh, which are excellent, I fully support, some of them are not going to be ready by the 1st of, uh, of July. There are family hubs are being brought into operation and that'll take... Th- few hundred families out of hotels. I, there's pros and cons to the family hubs. I think they're a huge improvement on uh, on the hotel accommodation. Uh, families will have, children will have their own rooms. There will be kitchen. I think in some of the cases that I know of, there'll be one kitchen to be shared between two families. So at least they can cook their meals. There'll be play areas for the kids. The danger with that is what a temporary solutions become permanent. And families can be left there for a long time on the understanding, look, they're, they're reasonably accommodated, so there's no urgency or pressure on getting them out. That's and speaking, the speaking of the minister, I remember in this studio, uh, you spoke to me previously, and you were defensive, almost supportive of Alan Kelly. What's your assessment of Simon Coveney? I think Simon Coveney's a good man. I have a lot of respect for him. I think he has tried very hard to address this problem. Uh, I think his plan is the most detailed and comprehensive we've seen. I have two problems with the plan. I think they have become clear. First is there's very little in it, as I say, to prevent more and more people and families becoming homeless. And secondly, there continues to be a heavy reliance on the private rented sector to solve the problem of homelessness. Now, the private rented sector is part of the problem, not the solution. <laughs> People are being evicted from the private rented sector. People can't get into the private rented sector. I, I, so the, the fact that... Uh, it's two out of three people who are homeless are on social housing waiting lists are to be provided with social housing within the private rented sector seems to me absurd and incapable of success. Okay. Well, let me let me play the devil's advocate and confront that very situation with you. So, this week on the TV news, I have observed, as I'm sure a lot of people have, you get someone who says, I was in a guard station last night, I have a couple of kids... And they could be a lone parent, they could be an immigrant, and they say, I want proper social housing, a house from the state. And here you have Mr. and Mrs. Murphy, 30, 40 years of age, two or three kids. They're probably millennials that had the aspiration to buy their own home for 300 grand and now find they're paying rent in Blanchardstown for two and a half grand a month or whatever. And they're saying, hold on a second, 
I am part of the coping classes that are paying for everything. I'm at the pin of my collar to pay my rent. And these people think they'll get a state house for free. So I've loaded the question deliberately and provocatively, but I do think it does speak to a certain narrative that's out there. What do you say to those people? It does. It does speak to that narrative. And... uh it's, uh, it has the potential to generate a huge racism in this country, huge racist attitudes. We have got to house there. Everybody has a right, a fundamental basic right to a home that they can, uh, that they can afford. Everybody has. Uh, and I think we as a society... But does anyone have a responsibility to provide their own home? Well, if you can afford to. But to get a mortgage today, you need a household income of at least seventy-five thousand euros a year as a deposit. And, uh, no, as a as a uh, to get a mortgage, yeah, yeah, you right, only yeah, get yeah. a mortgage of three and a half times your income as a multiple. Yeah. And given the fact that the price of housing today, you need an in, you need a, a household income of seventy-five thousand. Only one in three households in this country today have a household income of seventy-five thousand or greater. That means that two out of three of every household in this country today can never, ever even dream of owning their own house. If they can't even dream of owning their own house, then the state has got to provide them with accommodation at a price that they can afford. Having a home is a fundamental right. There are five, for me, five fundamental rights. Right to adequate food, the right to health care, the right to education, the right to work and the right to a home. And there, for me, are the five basic rights because if one of those is missing, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to lead a fulfilled life. You're absolutely now, no, but you're absolutely right about that. But let me push the counterpoint because I think um, I'm interested in your response to it. Ninety-six percent of all tax is paid by fifty percent of the population. We know the very rich pay no tax. They go in exile or they use the best accountants to avoid it. And the very poor don't. So you've got this cohort of a million people in the middle who feel they're paying for everything. Yeah. I I can understand that. And they are paying a huge amount in in tax. Uh, However, the reality is that more people would love to be paying tax, but they can't get into the... uh, into the labour market at a, a wage that would enable them to pay a tax. So I, I don't think it's helpful to be pitting one group off against another. We need a country uh, where solidarity is the is the theme, where we are all in this together. We all need, and it's in everybody's interest, including those who are paying tax. It's in everybody's interest that we have uh, drug services, for example, because they are the ones who are victims of crime to feed drug habit, that we have good accommodation for for people. It's in everybody's interest to have a society in which people are are, are looked after, whether they have an income or whether they don't. Okay. Part of the purpose of this interview is to get people to talk about things they don't normally talk about. Looking at Father Peter McVary's backstory, a lot of talk this weekend about a just society and social justice. In 1974, after your ordination, you were born and bred, I think, in Newry. You went to Clongo's, a really well-to-do education, a superb education. What motivated you to join the Jesuits and what motivated you to go into inner-city Dublin and do what you started to do in 1974? Well, what... uh, What motivated me to join the Jesuits uh, was my parents. My mother, my father was a doctor. Doctor in the old days when you didn't have a practice, you just had a doctor, you were a doctor and you had your patients. 
And I would remember hearing the phone going off maybe at three o'clock in the morning and my father would have to get up and he'd go out to see a patient. Sometimes the phone might go twice in the, in the, in, during the night. Uh, he didn't have a partner who could sort of take week on, week off. Or care dog. Break. <laughs> uh, so I think I got a sense of service from my father. And a work ethic? And a, a work, well, a sense of service, certainly, yes. that, uh, you know, our life is about serving others. My mother was a Welsh Protestant, uh, but in order to marry my father, who was a Catholic, she had to convert to Catholicism. Otherwise, in those days, my father would have been doomed to go to hell for all eternity for marrying a Protestant. So she became a Catholic and, like many converts, became more Catholic than the Catholics themselves. And was it a so, nationalist family, you know, in Newry on the border? We, were, we weren't politically, uh, uh, I think, like many other families, uh, we uh, we we preferred the standard of living that was available in the north of Ireland, even if we had been theoretically in favour of a of a united Ireland. So there was free education, there was free health care in the north of Ireland long before that became available in the in the Republic of okay, Ireland. Okay, so, so over the period uh, of your ministry, yeah. when you observe Irish society, yeah. one of the things that has been really striking over the last four decades is that the church brand and religion has become almost mm. toxic mm. so that we have a current controversy about how dare the nuns have a, an ownership of a public hospital site. And there are so many other examples, repeal the eighth and so on, of a secular society. Where did it all go wrong for the religion brand? I think it went wrong because I think the church has been proclaiming a God that doesn't exist. The church has been proclaiming a God of judgment, a God of laws. and it has, Heaven and hell. Yeah, that the church, that God has laid down these laws. The church has interpreted and reaffirmed these laws. And if you obey these laws, you go to heaven. And if you don't obey these laws, you go to hell. Whereas? Whereas, for me, the God that Jesus revealed in the Gospels was a God of compassion, a God who cares. And I think that division uh, was there in the Gospels. Jesus was objecting to the pharisaical God of the law. God had laid down all these laws and Jesus was proclaiming a God of compassion and the religious authorities of his time uh, believed that Jesus was undermining the faith of the Israelites and therefore God required them to get rid of, of, of Jesus. I think the same division is in the church today. There are those who believe that God is a God of the law, has laid down laws, and therefore, any concession, such as we've seen at the Synod of uh, Bishops recently, any concession to uh, divorced and remarried Catholics in terms of going to communion, any reaching out to people in gay relationships is anathema to God and cannot be tolerated in the name of religion. And then there are those who believe God is a God of compassion, including Pope Francis, and that we have to find some way of reaching out to those uh, to, so can to you see groups. the Vatican changing? Oh, I think Pope Francis is trying very hard to change it. So they'll become I a la think, carte? No, no, not at all. But it's not, a, just, it's not about laws. That's the mistake the church has made. It's not about laying down laws. But it's a sin I, or a sin. It's not a sin. Well, ultimately, even the church will always affirm, though it doesn't uh, announce it very loudly, at the end of the day, you follow your conscience. 
That is the church's position. You must follow your conscience. Now, the church will add to that. You must inform your conscience, and you inform your conscience by listening to the church. But at the end of the day, you must live by your conscience. And I think we've got to get back to that and stop telling people uh, what they have to do and what they mustn't do. We have got the church's job is to te- not to tell people what God wants them to do or not. The church's job is to tell people how much God loves them. Therefore, let them respond to that. That's what every parent does with a child. You don't have to tell the child, you know, if you're short, if mother's short of milk, you must go to the shop. The mother asks the child, will you go to the shop for milk? The child spontaneously responds because they're responding to the love uh, of the parent. I think we have to tell people, show people uh, how much God loves them, and then we allow them to respond to that love in their own way. And the only way you can, you can't get up in a pulpit and preach a God of compassion. The only way you can preach a God of compassion is to be the compassion of God. I have some very good friends. Francis is doing that. I have some very good friends of priests in Wexford and they've told me about uh, moments in their life of solitude, moments of doubt about their faith, the celibacy stuff and all that kind of thing. Have you ever experienced doubts? If you don't experience doubts, you're uh, you're in trouble. I think everybody has to experience doubts. The only way you grow in faith is to experience doubts and to work through them and resolve them. And then you grow in faith. So, of course, I have experienced doubts and I continue to experience doubts. Does God exist? Nobody, nobody can prove God exists. I believe God exists. What do you think happens I, when you die? When I die, I believe you experience God face to face. You go and you meet God face to face and you live in that relationship with God for, for all eternity. So I do believe in an afterlife. Because you were a nuclear physicist in, in college. You studied science, didn't you? Yeah, but that's irrelevant. <laughs> right. That's, you think uh, I mean, not, I did and I enjoyed... See where I, I'm going with that? Now? I enjoyed studying science. Uh, but actually, science... Uh, like there's no Adam and Eve in science. How do you mean... Well, what I mean is that there's a, a scientific explanation oh, of the world. Oh, absolutely. But that's okay. I mean, you don't have to be a creationist to believe in God. No, uh, I believe God uh, created the world. In fact, when I look at the universe, my faith in God is strengthened. When you look at the enormity of the universe and you look at the wonder of the universe and you look at billions of galaxies in the universe— more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on all the beaches of the world. The magnificence of that, the enormity of that, just points to me to a wonderfully, all-powerful, wonderful God who created all Are you that. optimistic for the future of the country? I think we have a lot of soul-searching to do. I think we could become a very, very divided and unequal society. I think we have already become that. And I think we have... Is that not... I was in America for 14 weeks. I was totally taken by the epidemic of homelessness everywhere, every public park. Yeah. You know, it was just endemic. Yeah, we're we're never going to be like, uh, like America. I mean, during the presidential election recently, there was not one single mention by any of the candidates as to how they were going to address the problem of homelessness. I didn't hear housing mentioned in one debate. No, I ne- no, never, uh, uh, pro- never. Vice President, it was never mentioned, the it's housing crisis. It's all about the middle class. It was all about the middle class and how we can lure the middle class, support the middle class, get them to vote for us. We're, we haven't gone that far yet. But we are 
uh, we are losing this sense of solidarity. And how, think, how, what's the rapidly. difference between 2017 and when you started in 1974? Well, the difference is the inequality has grown enormously. We are now the 14th wealthiest country in the world. There are, according to Wealthwatch, 53,000 millionaires in Ireland, 5,000 more than there were 12 months ago. And yet we have a more homeless people and families than at any time since the famine. That contrast is absolutely, uh, to my mind, both immoral and obscene. And I think we have got to bridge that gap. Unless if we allow our society to become more and more unequal, you will never find to have peace. You will never have stability. You will have a growing problem of crime. You'll have a growing problem of antisocial behaviour uh, and a much, much uh, restless society. Loneliness? You ever get lonely? I haven't time to be lonely. <laughs> I'm surrounded by people all the time. I'm surrounded by people that I like, that I, uh, whose company I enjoy. Uh, that's homeless. Do you people. have many close friends? No, I don't have many close friends. No, um, I have. I have a lot of friends, but I don't have any many close friends. And mid seventies now, seventy four. Any plans to retire? No, I'll keep going as long as I can, uh, as my energy uh, and health... You die with your boots on. Well, as my energy and health diminishes, I won't be able to do the uh, the frontline work, the face-to-face work as much and as And you have I, delegated a lot of that. We've delegated all the administration and uh, and running of the organisation, yes. I've delegated. I got rid of all that and delighted to be rid of all that. As I say, if there's a problem at three o'clock in the morning now, it's our CEO's phone who goes, not mine. Uh, so I'm delighted to get rid of all that, but I'll continue as long as I can. But when my health and, uh, and energy doesn't allow me to do that much frontline work, I would hope to continue talking and writing about justice issues, about homelessness, if it still exists, which I hope it won't. But uh, I'll continue to talk and write about uh, justice issues and try and... Uh, uh, move our society uh, in a more towards a more caring and uh, just society. Father Peter McVerry, man who's won the Freedom of the City and so many national and international awards, thank you for being my guest on Yates on Sunday, a truly inspirational man. Long may you continue to do what you do. Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Electricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you.